Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Lucas Catton spent 12 years as a member of Scientology. Most of the time, he was also heavily involved in its rehab program called Narconon, where he even served as the president of their flagship facility in Oklahoma called Narconon Arrowhead. His first book, Have You Told All, details some startling information about their operations. He then became a whistleblower, appearing on national television and testifying for civil and criminal proceedings against Narconon. In the decades since he began his departure, he has been rebuilding his life and continues to help others through work in the behavioral health field and as a coach and a consultant. He recounts that rebuilding process and what he has learned along the way in his latest book, Reconnection. You can find out more and reach him at lucascatton.com. Here's Lucas with the second part of our conversation today. So then... When you were talking about the downturn, 2006, was there anything else you wanted to say before that time, before we get into that story? Well, I guess referencing the, the picture, the other picture that you saw. Ah, um, right. Thanks. Uh, I, Arrowhead was a very important fixture on the Scientology scene in the mid-2000s. Uh, Tom Cruise got reinvolved in, in Scientology back then and started speaking out again. Arrowhead was... was promoted as the International Training Center to grow Narcan networks throughout the world. And, you know, income was coming in and things things were fast and loose with all that kind of stuff. And so Dave Miscavige, uh, the chairman of the board of Religious Technology Center, the leader of Scientology, uh, had a very personal interest in it as well. He would send people out that were high up in, in his list to come check on things and attend events and, and report back. And anytime there was, you know, a celebrity-related Thing at any point in time, including multiple visits from, from Tom Cruise, all that would get reported directly to Miscavige because he wanted to know. And, and the, the one time that he personally came out while I was there, um, he came out and toured the place and, and, and um, flew in on a private jet, um, uh, this big, uh, was it a G4, Gulfstream 4, flew into McAllister and we all hopped into these vehicles, and Dan Sherman, the biographer, was there, and and uh, his you know crew of personal assistants, and we went and toured and hung out for a couple hours, and then we took the picture that was out front there with uh, Israel Weinberg and Lori Zern. Rena was the president of ABLE at the time, which is the Association for Better Living and Education. That's the that was sort of the buffer between the church and Narconon was ABLE, but ABLE was staffed by Sea Org members, the billion-year contract dedicated church members, you had to be a Sea Org member to work at ABLE. So uh, Lori Zarn was the executive director at the time. Rena Weinberg was the president. So they were they were present there as well. And um, you know that was that was sort of like the pinnacle. Like that picture was like the pinnacle time of uh, of Narconon. And then um, there's a, a long series of events. On a personal level, but also organizationally, that that occurred right around 2006 and, and continued to slide after that. Okay, okay. I'm curious also about your impressions about these people, these people who were high up on the food chain, so to speak. 
and not that you necessarily saw them every day, but what were they like in person? The biggest thing is no wasn't ever an option. If there was, they would use this term command intention. And that that was code word for whatever whatever Miscavige wanted to have happen was what needed to happen. And he whether that was based on, on some policy or reference or not, or if it was just a personal thing, um, no was not a, an acceptable thing. And people who got in the way of that were um, punished, sometimes very severely, as you've probably seen a ton of stories. Like Rena Weinberg disappeared shortly after that picture was taken and has not been seen publicly since. This is... She disappeared in 2006, so this is 14 years later. She still is gone, you know. Um, and at that particular visit, I remember him, uh, him, Miscavige, by the way, is he stopped and there were some people behind him in his entourage and they were they were talking amongst themselves. And he stopped and looked at them and very sternly goes, is there a problem? And they're like, no, 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 no. And they all like scurried back up to his side. And, and it was just a a glimpse into the window of the dominant culture of him personally, but also the CEO guys as a whole that I would, I would wind up seeing much more of, um, you know, working people all hours of the day for, for, for no money, for very little food, for very little reward of any type. And just really using them as almost like, I don't know, an indentured servants type thing. Okay. Because I know there's still a lot, left to your story and I want you to be able to talk about as much as you can. So what happened 2006? Well, first 2006 is when I, I finished my staff contract. I decided that I was done. I was not going to continue working directly as a, as a staff member. I shifted over to something called a field staff member role, which is where I would become kind of like a recruiter for Narcon and get paid to get people into the program. Um, and so that was where I, I started to do my shift. They never fully filled the position of, of president after I left. Uh, still to this day, there's never been another um, president of Narcon Arrowhead since since that time. Um, and it was, there was a few things that started to happen. One, the economy started to shift, um, you know, back in the early 2000s, so a lot of people could put $30,000 on a credit card. More people than you realize anyways could do that to send their their loved ones over to Oklahoma or another Narcon center or uh, get a second mortgage on their house uh, really easily to come up with some cash or had some savings, whatever. So as the housing market started to turn and the economy started to turn, the availability of people with excess cash was starting to dwindle. So their numbers began to slow down in 2006 and then continued heavily after that, where they then tried to dive into the insurance realm and starting to accept insurance for people coming in. The problem is what they do doesn't fit into most insurance billing codes. So they were they wound up fraudulently billing people over time for services that they, they didn't belong paying. In fact, I, I shared uh, an email from Gary Smith, I think in 2008, where he had talked about developing what he called the insurance line and how they went from like $5,000 in, in 2006 or 2007 to um, um, like $2 million in, in the following year in insurance revenue. And it continued to go up from there. And, but as they had to try to figure this out, that was, that was an issue. And insurance companies were looking at them. Blue Cross Blue Shield was holding a lot of money. Um, and they 
they had to really start to rely on insurance. But but again, they didn't they didn't have proper licensing and they didn't have proper delivery of credentialed therapists, for example, to be delivering counseling. It was staffed by a bunch of former clients and it wasn't treatment. It was their own kind of quasi recovery uh, community. Wow. Okay. And so even with all of this and the fraud that you're talking about, this, the center is still there. It's still operating, even with having committed these, these crimes, even though I know that that's a Scientology thing and they get in your face, what crimes have you committed, but we're going to reverse it for a moment. Actual crimes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it it turned out to be, you know, I'll fast forward a little bit. And um, toward the end, as I was exiting completely everything, um, 2010, 2011, they, there was a lot of attention put on because they had a series of deaths at the facility. Now, I was, at that point, uh, I had already become what they called declared a suppressive person, which we talked about suppressive people early on, uh, because I, I dared to question the insanity. And I started to watch these things online and people who started to speak out, and I was paying attention to, the, to some of the stuff. And because of that, I was then, it was then turned on me. And so all these people were forced to disconnect from me, and I wound up um, very uh, alone, isolated, hurt, broke, you know, really in a in a bad spot for for a while, trying to reconcile what on earth just happened, what was I a part of, I can't believe I did this, you know, that sort of thing. How did I get to this point? Well, as that was occurring, these deaths were happening in Oklahoma, and and then there was another one in Georgia as well. And I sat back and I would watch some of these interviews that were occurring. And I would see Gary Smith, for example, lie on television about questions related to Scientology, related to their treatment, related to their certification, what they were allowed to address and weren't and things like that. And, and, and eventually it came to a boiling point where I said, I have, I have to do something about this because I, I know too much not to. And so I began speaking out. Uh, at that point, uh, I'd written that book I told you about. I started helping plaintiffs' attorneys in these wrongful death suits, um, being anything from a document interpreter slash consultant to uh, an expert witness to, um, you know, being called as a potential witness to subpoenaed for different um, uh, depositions, and also wound up as a result of that there were investigations opened in Georgia and Oklahoma and Michigan, minimally, where I would speak with insurance fraud investigators, where I would speak, I wound up testifying in front of a grand jury uh, in Oklahoma and speaking to the FBI in Michigan. And all this series of events that that were happening at that particular time, for example, where that first book ended and where the kind of the next one kicked off, uh, which I wound up calling reconnection because it was the process of being at that low point of isolation and difficulty and and what on earth happened and where do I go from here and and sorting all this stuff out and and starting to take steps to rectify that situation and and finding some redemption along the way, being able to correct some of the things that I was involved in, help speak out on behalf of um, some victims who who now couldn't speak out and, and, you know, knowing information that could help somehow either get some type of recompense for their families or to be able to hold people accountable with, you know, state regulatory agencies. And so that's what I did. And that was part of my early rebuilding process was 
was speaking out against that. And that was 2013, 2014, 2015. Um, meanwhile, there's a long answer to your question of, is it still operational? Um, there's now, like if you take a, a Google satellite image of Arrowhead, there's, there's like two cars in a parking lot, a parking lot that was full. And all the cabins around the lake were full and everything were full back then. And now there's, there's nobody there. There's, there's maybe 10 people on the program and maybe uh, 20 staff members who are mostly paid a small stipend to be there or there as volunteers um, because they suppose they are going to go through another renovation and try and rebuild yet again. But they were down to, they were down to nothing. They, they lost their licensure. Or they were down to nothing. Right. What's interesting is that it seems like the the thing that you were trying to go towards that connection, the community, when that's all stripped away from you, and that was the thing that was your bond, uh, then it it hurts all the more so, of course, and and then it seems also like your want to do something for other people, then got transferred over to being not, to not helping people get involved in Arcanon, but helping be kind of to protect the public from it. And so using skill set and the same sort of, I think, conscience. Now, now with uh, more information or being more fully educated, you were able to use those skills and that wish in a different direction. I'm wondering how you kept yourself protected during that whole period of time. You know, there was, there was a point where I, I, I wasn't, I didn't think that there was anything else that they could do because what I had on my side was truth. I wasn't, I wasn't exaggerating anything. I, all I did was share my truth of what I knew and that, and that I felt like as long as that's what I stuck to. And, you know, like when questions would come up, did anybody ever get well? Yeah, I saw people get well. I'm not going to, you know, I wouldn't deny that. Uh, did people feel like, did most of the people who were there, did they feel like they were doing something good? Yes, they did. And, and these are people that I still consider would be friends otherwise. Um, but as long as I stuck to that that truth of, no, here's what actually happened. I, I was present. Here's the documentation to back it up, that sort of thing. Then I felt like that was something that was that was not going to get me into any serious trouble. Now, was there backlash? Yeah, but I'd already had all my, all my friends and associates and coworkers and everything disconnect from me. So there wasn't much I could do. I had protection in the court system to be able to um, you know, have parental rights. Um, and I had, um, you know, by then my, my family also left my parents. So I had, I had family support and, and it was just like, you know, I'm going to do this. I need to do this. And, and so I did. Okay. So I want to be able to hear what happened after that time. I guess I also want to be able to say that the, the fact that you portrayed it in this measured way, meaning yes i did see some people get better and yes it it was helpful in some people's lives and what's also true is it's a both and situation and that's that's a departure from cult like thinking cuz it doesn't have to be all good or all bad uh and that makes you actually look like someone who is reasonable and i know that's not a good word in scientology but um but <laughs> Yeah. I'm using Scientology swear words without people realizing it. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but you're then a critical thinker. Yes, this is true, but this is also really true. So let's talk about both, not just, you know, touting the party line and doing PR for this group, 
but these are the things I was privy to that everyone should know about. And so from that time, then what happened after 2013, 14, 15, et cetera? It took me a while. And, and many of these court cases strung out over years. And that's kind of why, why that was. I mean, at one point, sort of the sort of peak of, of that was in was April 2013. Um, the peak of the, the media portion of my involvement anyways was um, NBC had a show back then called Rock Center that Brian Williams hosted. And they had done a couple other shows about about the church and about Margaret on when the death started happening. And then we did a follow-up show regarding um, myself and another whistleblower had come forward and said, you know, many of the counselor certifications that they had gotten at Narcon were falsified and obtained fraudulently. And so the organization who had issued those certifications then filed lawsuits against them and, and stripped them of all their certifications. And then that became a big, uh, big story in addition to the uh, the deaths that occurred in addition to the insurance fraud that occurred they also had lied about their you know certifications so we wound up going on this nbc show um and and things sort of started to peak at that point more lawsuits got filed and and from there on a personal side i felt like i had released the book i had you know now gone national television i put my story out there my truth of what i knew of what occurred and I had to then turn around and focus on myself now. And I, after a, a, quite a long time, actually about a, a, at least a full year, I decided to start dating again. Um, and I wound up meeting this amazing woman who um, I'm married to today. And we have two wonderful boys as well. And, um, you know, I felt very unloved for a long time and very undeserving of love and she showed me that I that I did deserve it and that, that I was worth it and that was a that was a key part of my healing back then was that none of this made me um, you know none of this was irreparable you know it's not that I couldn't fix the situation that I couldn't fix myself that there was meaning in it all that I could carry forward as well and also be someone new at the same time and so that's sort of what continued to happen as I went back into creating a, a real life again. And um, so, so I started working more in the behavioral health field as a whole. I'd learned some skills on developing some websites and I started to get some contacts and some referrals of other treatment centers who were properly licensed, who did have actually trained therapists and, and doctors on staff and were providing you know, recognized forms of treatment and help them with their websites. And then I would get more referrals. And I built the side business, which became a, a real business of working with these people as consultants and continuing on to help in the same field that, that I initially got into, um, but in, a, in what I felt was a much more positive way. Right, right. Well, you want to know that your hard work and your devotion is going to be supporting something that has safeguards. Uh, where you don't have to worry that you're participating in in something that could cause harm and that then no responsibility is going to be taken for it, you know, then that can play with your head if you have a conscience. And I'm very happy that you were able to find this wonderful woman and, and have these two wonderful children. And I'm wondering about feeling unloved and also not deserving of love. So what time frame are you talking about where you were experiencing those feelings? 
really 2011 and 2012. In, in those early time periods, the, the second half of 2011 or most of that whole year, and then the beginning of 2012, uh, there was about a year and a half there where, and, and really toward the end of 2010, as I started my, my major exit, where, you know, I'm being told that I'm the one who's crazy and, and uh, you know, why don't I just get my act together and, and I'm the problem and all that stuff to the point of, you know, people who I called extremely good friends who now were told they can't communicate with me and told me that, you know, that they never would again. Um, like feeling like I had supported this thing and put all of my time, effort, energy, attention, spirit into for what? Mm. For deaths happening, for fraud occurring, for people becoming, you know, like that was sort of the reconciliation that I go into. And so I, I really took it heavily upon myself of going, wow, what did you do? You know, and that, there was there was a time where it was really tough to, to, to battle with. And so there there had to be, and it wasn't until really along the way as I as I continued to absorb a lot of material and information and, and um, from lots of different sources, reading a ton and listening a ton and going into sort of a, a, a new discovery period that I was able to sort of start to put some pieces together and go, you know, you, you have to forgive yourself and you have to forgive them as well, because otherwise you're not ever going to get past that. And so that was a, a key thing for me was I had to forgive myself. And that was, that was sort of the last step. Like I was able to forgive some of these other people before I was able to forgive myself, but that was part of me being able to feel loved again, because I, I was, you know, I was really, I felt really debased, you know. There is such a feeling of betrayal when you have devoted so much of your life, your whole life, for a period yeah. of time mm-hmm. uh, to something where then you're kind of kicked to the curb uh, and berated and insulted and considered less than um, mm-hmm. and then abandoned. And, 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 I don't have to remind you about all the horrible things. That <laughs> right. Well, yeah, tons of money. I mean, I was, you know, I was broke mentally financially, spiritually, in every way. Yeah. 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 I think the other thing that's really very hard is you want to know that after so much devotion that you have made connections that you think are going to be able to transcend whatever decision you decide to make in your own life, because these felt like true connections. And then to find out that they're conditional is quite devastating. And I'm, I'm wondering if there was anyone who did stay in contact who maybe wasn't supposed to, you don't have to mention names, but did that happen? Because sometimes people will, who are kind of under the radar about how they're feeling themselves about this, will find a way to stay in contact. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that, was another, that was another reason for naming the, the, this new book, Reconnection, because there was a sense of that. And I would have people who over the course of time would reach out to me in one way or another and say, you know what? I knew that something was wrong when they, when they called you an SP because there's no way that you were an SP. Like, you know, we were, we were close. I knew what you were doing. There's no way that you fit into that category. Um, I just want to know what really happened. And they, and that was it. They wanted to know what, you know, what really happened with me personally. Why did it come to that? And this is after many of them were, you know, then, no longer on staff because Narcon had had basically collapsed. Uh, people that had quietly 
began to walk away from their involvement in Scientology or were completely out at that point, but they still had some friends in, but they just didn't talk about it anymore. Um, there are lots of people that have come forward, and I'm friends with many of them today that I that I used to know back then, or at least um, am in contact with occasionally. Some are, are I'm really in a great friendship and and even a partnership with one in a in a in a different business that I have, um, you know, who was able to walk away and and be good. And I and I chronicled him as being an example. But you know, one of the things that that I thought was funny along the time is there was an early Narcon graduate from the '60s. The program actually started in a prison. Arizona State Prison in the, in the late 60s. And one of the early graduates was one of their key international spokespeople as like paraded up on things. And his name was Gordy Wynan. And Gordy was an amazing person who never became a Scientologist himself. He just wanted to help people. And he felt like back when he was in prison in the 60s that Narcanon helped him and William Benitez who started the program and all that stuff. Well, Gordy lived in Georgia and I had moved back to Georgia and he reached out to me and goes, Luke, I don't care what they say about you. You're a good guy and I know it. And, you know, I, I'm always going to be your friend. And that meant a lot at that time because he was sort of a symbol of knowing that there were, there had to be other people within that same system who, who didn't care, who valued that connection more so than they valued what they were told. And and that continues today. I mean, that there's still more people that come forward and go, hey, how have you been? I haven't talked to you in 10 years. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm actually really great. I'd love to talk to you. And occasionally people want to come out and they want, they want help how to, how to kind of reintegrate in society and drop their Scientology lingo. Um, uh, there are people who maybe are still involved in the behavioral health field that worked at Narcan. They go, how do I get a legitimate job? How do I work with a legitimate treatment center? Where do you recommend I go? Things like that. And it's been it's been really good. Sounds really good. Yeah. To have somebody say, I don't care what they say about you. I still think you're great. There's something it's like you can climb out out of a hole like that. Uh, you see who I am. You remember who I am, no matter, you know, what the sort of the PR buzz has been uh, around me and about me and that people do have to fight against this solid reputation that Scientology is very good at, unfortunately, but that people really do. And they've had, they had a chance to know who you were. And I'm wondering also when you're saying that your parents left, was it because of the experiences that you were having that prompted them to no longer be interested? That was like the nail in the coffin for them. They were already continuing. They were, they were actually less involved than I was in the end. And I had tried to kind of pull them in because I because at the very right toward the very end I was living in Clearwater and I was at Flag, you know, the 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 Mecca for Scientology often and that kind of thing. And and that's where I saw really the craziest of the crazy things happen and and what really made me go, I this is this is insane. I have to get out of here. And I thankfully they had terrible experiences at Flag and they had like kind of told themselves like, oh, I'm not, I'm not interested in going back there. Maybe I'll try something on the side again in the future. So they were already in that direction of just like, you know what, we're good. We don't, we don't need anything else anymore. And then once that happened, then they were like, oh, you know, these guys are terrible. I can't believe they would do that. And then I would share information with them and show them, you know, the different news articles. And I would tell them about, you know, my different depositions and meeting with, 
investigators and all that kind of stuff. And they go, you know, they, thankfully they weren't more indoctrinated than I was. Thankfully I was the most, I was the most involved uh, because it's much easier to help them get out all the way than it was so many stories of, you know, families that have been completely ripped apart. Right. And are are still torn apart. And, uh, you know, I work to try to help some of those families. It sometimes can take a very, very long time and sometimes can feel hopeless. Uh, But that there is something very devastating about feeling that a family member has chosen to be involved in an organization instead of having a relationship with you. Uh, where the I sort of picture it like the organization is firmly planted between the two of you, and you're trying mm-hmm. to potentially reach each other, and you can't because this organization is so big and and um, and also kind of volatile in your relationship with each other. I'm wondering when you were saying that your parents, and I don't know if you can talk about this, but you said your parents were having bad experiences at Flag, and also that's. For your perspective, that's where the crazy stuff happened. So can you give an idea about what you mean from your perspective and also what your parents went through? Sure. Scientology is always about getting as much money as they can. They, they always have been since you know the beginning of uh, any stories that have come out of it. But there was a, a time period specifically around 2007 um, when they re-released a set of books called The Basics. and before then and after then, uh, you know, for about three years on e- on either end, there was this mad dash for as much money as they possibly could get from anyone and everyone to mortgage everything you had, get all these credit cards you had, and they still do these things today. It, it just wasn't as crazy as it was back then. Um, and so that was one of the things that they experienced was what they call, what they call regging. Uh, a registrar is one who gets money for Scientology. So they call them reg for short. So they experienced this over-regging. Well, living there, I would have people show up at my house all the time and ask for money, just out of the blue. Like we'd be, you know, having dinner or something, and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door and somebody goes, Hey, there's a there's a new order out. We need to we need to collect as much money as we can tonight. How much can we give? You know, and and I'm like, my credit card's already full at the time and it's just nonstop. So that was one of the biggest things was constant demand for as much money as they could possibly bleed you up. And at the same time, overhearing some of the treatment of Sea Org members, my mom was on the other side of a wall when she was down visiting and she was at Flag and she heard screaming from a, an, an, a woman who was in charge, screaming at these younger, I call them kids that were you know in their 20s, staff members at Flag over who knows what, could have been something extremely trivial. And and seeing that treatment of people and and then witnessing some of that. And then shortly after that, 2009, I think, is when the St. Petersburg Times back then came out with uh, a series of articles uh, called The Truth Rundown. And so all this stuff started to occur. And also for me, I didn't even see The Truth Rundown articles at first, but I had gotten uh, Flags Magazine um, or the IES magazine, whichever it was, the um, I for some reason drawn a blank on the name of it, but it it was like a an anti piece to that, talking about these former high ranking members, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mike Rinder, Marty Rathman, and and a few other people, Tom DeMarc, and some other people that that had left and had spoken out for the series, 
and they were trashing them. And I'm, I'm reading this going, what is this craziness? And so it made me more curious. Well, if this is happening, and then my mom's telling me that people are you know, being berated, and I'm seeing people, you know, people are calling me from at all hours of the night and showing up my home. Yeah, there's something really crazy going on behind here. What else is there? I got to find out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, that becomes sort of uh, evidence that you can't ignore anymore because it's coming from all sides now. Uh, and so then making that change, I'm sure, is a, is a very hard step because you know what the risks are going to be, but only to a certain degree. You don't know what it's going to feel like. You don't know what your life is going to be like in, uh, during that period of time. But I am very happy for you that your parents were with you along that ride for a lot of it. Because uh, that's not often how it is uh, in either direction. Kids stay in or parents stay in, and people feel like they're doing this all on their own. And so, uh, okay, so now the work that you're doing, putting together these websites for legitimate organizations that are helping people, what else are you doing? I mean, I know that you know you are a resource to a lot of people, and I'm sure you make yourself available if people have questions. And they want help sort of getting back on their feet because you had to, you had to do that. Um, And so tell me a little bit about what else you're doing besides your, your day job. Sure. So there was uh, along the way, I had done some consulting for a facility in uh, Florida Panhandle and a couple of people who worked there, I had approached them and, and said, look, if you ever want to start a unique recovery program um, based on some mindfulness activities uh, that is research-backed, that is different from other what other places are doing out there. Um, let's talk. And so eventually they did, and they wound up moving up, and we started uh, an outpatient recovery program that was um, an experiment at first. But you know, we we hired a clinical team that was experienced in in and in using these applications in a clinical setting. And developing the series of, of group uh, therapies as well, and bringing in this unique, really great program that we totally took a chance on, and we grew it, and we opened another location, and and we grew it. And uh, for me, that was sort of the end of the road, where I decided that I didn't like the operation side; I like the creation side. And I saw people doing great, um, and and I saw people needing other help and they would get properly referred to other programs that could help them instead of going, no, you know, this, this is the only way it was, it was a true continuum of care working with other resources locally um, on an outpatient level. That was, that was a wonderful experience for me because I then got to be a part of it. I had this, there was a time in 2005, there was a, a moment that I thought about this specifically of going, you know, I should start a program someday because I'm starting to learn some things outside of Narcanon and be like, wow, there's, you know, there's, there's so much out there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we did. So along that time of my rebuilding process and finding all these things, diving into much more of a traditional clinical setting and, and working with more qualified professionals that I didn't come up with the therapy. I would never come up with the therapy because I'm not a therapist. You know, we would hire people who were qualified to do that, to come up with the, you know, with therapy or to, to um, administer uh, approved therapies and things like that. So that was a really, a really cool thing that I enjoyed being a part of. And so now I've gone back into 
you know, some other consulting work and, and that sort of thing. But I've, I've sort of, I'm in the middle of doing the shift of, I have realized that all of this all along is with the intent that I enjoy seeing people do better in life. And even though I've gravitated to potentially some things that at that time I thought were good may not have been, I think that developing those critical thinking skills like you talk about and being able to find commonalities and be able to um, assist someone in finding resources that are best for them, not this is what I think is the best period, has been sort of like a, a culmination of where I feel like I am now in doing general consulting and 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 helping people as a whole and where I want to get out and do speaking and write more books and, and do all this stuff because I feel like I have amassed enough knowledge where I can actually start to share that with somebody and it's worth something, not just I'm going to regurgitate someone else's stuff, but here's a lot of wonderful resources and credit them and help point them in, in hopefully a helpful direction. You know, sometimes people will say, I, I got involved in doing something or setting something up or providing a resource. Um, not because I had great modeling, but because I learned what not to do. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, uh, let's make sure we don't do this. Let's make sure we do the opposite of that. Let's make sure that never happens. And then you develop a place that is healthier. And I'm sure it has those sort of nuanced pieces to it, like people being able to make choices about the help that they want to get or how long they feel they need to stay or the things that are going to matter to you because of your experiences right. that you you might consciously be aware of might it might be subconscious but it's always gets infused and where do you think it got infused into these centers what mattered to you to make sure was available to the people there i think probably the biggest thing is is complete transparency for mm-hmm. me uh, where is something derived from and how how far can you trace it back to see where it is and and can you dissect this and and question it openly and see if it really does resonate with you. And can you find something that backs up that resource? So my going into it to begin with was always, I need to see credible studies from credible resources and qualified people to back up the points that we might be sharing with someone. Not just, well, here's my experience, this might help you too, which isn't invalid necessarily, right. but. I wanted to, to make sure that we went that those extra steps and and for people to, you know, for people to to easily take it or leave it. There, you know, the one of the wonderful things about outpatient setting as a whole is that people are fully there at will. Mm-hmm. And if they're, you know, a lot of people are sent to residential treatment, such as myself, early on, that it's not an appropriate level of care for them. It's done sometimes out of panic, sometimes out of just uh, obviously pure love and they, they feel that's what they're supposed to do is, is go to residential treatment, but they may not need that. And when somebody is more motivated or they, they're, they're, their use is not to that level and they can fit an appropriate diagnosis and, and um, an ASAM level, American Society of Addiction Medicine criteria to fit in a lower level of care, then that's wonderful. Or if they're stepping down from a detox or residential. So those people were are, are willingly a part of that and, and we're always helping them find resources, including working in tandem with their psychiatrist or their outside therapist or their outside doctor and working as a treatment collaborative team. That those things were important to me, that it was it was fully at will, it was wide open and transparent, and it was uh, always scientifically backed with credible resources. 
Um, so, right. There you go. Right. And that clearly, as you're saying that you would help people work uh, together and develop their team or work as a team that you did not need to tout your center as the only way and the only source of help. And, uh, and in that way, you know, that's what Scientology and most other groups like it will do. Like we are the true way, the only way, the only valid way and, uh, ignore all the other potential resources out there. So what else should people look for? Because I know the whole residential treatment and, and teen treatment kind of world. I want to be able to, of course, talk more about that at some point, even though I've had some guests on who have talked about it, but it's unregulated and dangerous and not always, but uh, there it can get very abusive and there aren't enough safeguards in place. But what should people watch out for, positive and negative, if they want to be able to see if what they're getting involved in or what they're about to put a loved one into or sign them up for is going to be healthy and good for them? I would say first and foremost is does the does the treatment method that they're using first does it seem to make sense and and for the person who's wanting to go does it feel like that's going to help them like is that something that is important for them uh, do they feel like that's a method that's going to help them get well and and as and because if not if they're completely resistant then it could be the best program in the world um, the chances of them doing well in that program at that time are, are not good in, in my opinion so that would be the first thing but but in terms of like vetting a facility is um, certainly taking a look at their licensure, uh, taking a look at any additional accreditation they have, um, and looking at their, their personnel. How are they staffed? Are they staffed with people who are only paraprofessionals, or do they have a good ratio of paraprofessionals and, and fully trained and licensed professionals? Um, are the therapists you know, master's level clinicians who are, are uh, have years of experience in in both the, the educational side and the and the practical clinical setting of working with people to be able to provide these services, or did they, you know, um, th- that's that's a big thing for me uh, is is that because with Narcanon specifically, how much they faked their credentials and how much that was played on people that they had these certifications that they either didn't have or, or certainly didn't deserve because they pulled a fast one. Um, you can't fake, you know, uh, a master's degree and, and exam and oral presentation in front of a certification board, you know, for an LPC license kind of thing. Like these things can't be faked. These people may or may not be great for that situation, but at least they've, earned their way to be in that position. So I think as long as the programs have that, now outside of that, some people might want to go to, um, you know, something that's more of like an adventure therapy type thing, if, if that's the case. So they might, they might want to go to a religious program. They might want all these different things. And, and I don't think those are necessarily unhelpful. I think that it just needs to be very clear what they are and very clear with what they're getting into, that that transparency is, is present. Okay, so I know we're, we're wrapping up with our time, and I wanted to find out from you if there's anything else you want to make sure to let people know. And I also was going to ask you about just being a father and 
how your experiences are informing how you are as a parent and how you're raising your children? Great question. So I have my daughter uh, who's with us part-time and uh, my two sons. And, you know, one of the things that Scientology is, is it's highly judgmental of all people who are not Scientologists and who don't think that way. And as I had to, through my process of stripping away some of that judgmental thinking as much, and I continue to do so, I wrote a children's book. Uh, it's called um, We Are All People, a children's book on tolerance. And, um, and I had this guy uh, do the illustrations for it. And, and I, think it's, I think it's beautiful. And I wrote it for my kids. And it's, and it's for all kids to try and open up and look at people just as that, that, that we all are here together. And that if somebody is trying to tell us that someone else is less than we are, for whatever reason, because they look or, or believe something different or, you know, any of those things that they're somehow less than we are, because that's what Scientology teaches. You're less than us because we are the elite. Then the more that we can help children look at people just as people, I think that's a big thing. And, and, and I love being a dad as my most... Uh, it helps keep me young and make me older at the same time, if that's possible. Um, Sleep-wise yeah. and, and gray hair and all that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. uh, but it's it's amazing. It really is amazing. And, um, you know, if, if I can, I would just say that if, if anybody has any questions or um, if, if there's any resources I can help provide or anything like that, then certainly at any point in time, you can, you can reach out to me through lucascatton.com. Um, that's L-U-C-A-S-C-A-T-T-O-N dot com and um you know there's some videos and there's a podcast that, that i also do that tries to help support uh men to to open up and have more meaningful discourse um talk about things that are more real and not so um not so much uh bravado and dominance and crushing it and all that kind of stuff but let's let's search for greater connection and meaning in life that kind of thing so you know there might be some other resources for you mm. Beautiful. That's a perfect way to end our conversation today. I hope we get a chance to to speak again soon. And uh, because I I feel like there is a lot of uh, information you have, a lot of expertise, and a lot of sensitivity because of your experiences, um, and a lot of how tos, how to uh, discern if something is healthy or not, how to rebuild a life, also, and also self esteem, and to feel that you're worthy of a good life. Um, so thank you very much for your time and it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. One more thing before you go. One of the things that Lucas talked about today was devoting himself to something so wholeheartedly and throwing himself into it with his whole being only then to be declared a suppressive person, a term that doesn't mean a lot to people outside of Scientology, but within Scientology, it is a very heavy accusation. And he was called that because he suddenly started questioning what was happening and what was kind of feeling wrong. And then, as most people are who question in these kinds of groups, they are isolated or punished or pushed out and certainly defamed. And this left him feeling isolated, alone, hurt, and broken. 
it is a horrible situation where you are pushed into a place of work, and I suppose any place where no is not an option. There is then no way for you to exercise your freedom. There's no way for you to, at times, follow your conscience. There's no way for you to follow your instincts. And then there's no way for you to feel like your voice or your opinion matters. I think one of the things that stayed with me while he was talking, and that's why I brought it up with him, was this feeling of being betrayed. But not only betrayed, but I think that gut-wrenching feeling of being expendable. There are many people who devote themselves, again, wholeheartedly to relationships, to businesses, but they're left feeling expendable. Those who started companies years ago and are now being edged out or fired by the newly hired and ambitious and sometimes heartless and very bottom line employees that take over. People who devote their lives to a relationship only to find that the person they made sacrifices for and gave up their life for has moved on to be with someone new, and that someone new then reaps all the benefits of a good and opulent life that you helped to create for your partner, now former partner, through your support and through your sacrifice. In cults, people often feel of little significance when compared to the overall purpose. And when you don't matter nearly as much as the leader of the group or the mission of the group, you are therefore able to be pushed out or abandoned. You're replaceable, non-essential, unimportant, unnecessary, unneeded, no longer required, and worst of all, in terms of confidence, disposable. Do you remember the quote, actually it's a funny quote, from Shrek by the character Lord Farquaad, where he says, Some of you may die, but that is a sacrifice I'm willing to make. So that's the lighter side of this. But being disposable is a very serious issue in terms of self-esteem, morale, motivation. There are many people in our world who are treated as expendable. People close to retirement. The elderly, actually, quite unfortunately and shamefully in general. Migrant farm workers. People who have underlying medical conditions. Nurses right now on the front lines who are talking about how they are called essential, but they feel expendable because of the lack of protective equipment. And it happens so often, even in movies with certain characters, like how I've noticed throughout the years, it's often the gay characters who are the ones, historically, who are, for whatever reason, killed off in the story. And all the other expendable and disposable people in people's eyes. They are often the partners of narcissists. When a narcissist is no longer being adored and idealized and honored. And if you become sometimes somebody who the narcissist feels is getting stronger or is not willing to kind of keep up the facade and seem like everything is fine with them in the public eye, then 
they know you no longer represent them well and their interests. So you'll be replaced in a heartbeat after many years of devotion and forgiveness and mistreatment. So something I try to remind people of when they have left a controlling situation or have been kicked out of a controlling situation and they put on themselves that they feel like they're the ones who abandoned the group, they abandoned the mission, they disappointed the people in the group, where if they'd only tried harder or worked harder to make the people there happy or happy with them, or if they'd only sacrificed more, or if they'd only brought in more money or brought in more members or just done some things that were superhuman, let's face it, then it would have worked out somehow perfectly. And they would have been able to have been able to prove that they have enough value to the group. But you should never have to prove your value, especially at the expense of your sanity or your health. And especially to people who care more about furthering their own goals or the goals of the group than yours. And you'll know that along the way when you're exhausted and no one cares and when you've given up your own path and your own dreams. And instead of someone noticing that and feeling bad and saying, you know, go, go do your life, you're rewarded for making those sacrifices. And if you find that, that if you go up to the person who is running some company that is pushing you and pushing you and pushing you to your brink, or to the person you're in a relationship with who you think is just driving you to the point of madness and you're hitting a wall, and you say that you're at the end of your rope, and in either situation, they just tell you to hold on to the rope tighter, then these are people who don't care. They don't care about you. They just care about your service to them. I'm so glad Lucas was able to rebuild his life, and it should not have been necessary. It's beyond ironic that an organization that treats people supposedly for addictions and helping people get back on their feet doesn't at all mind pushing their staff so far down that they hit rock bottom themselves. And then once you've hit rock bottom, they shame you and they blame you for being too much of a mess for them to want to deal with. I often wish that there could be some sort of irony mirror when people walk into places like this, where it could be held up to the people there, to the abusers, to the narcissists, to those who run these organizations that are manipulative, that play with your head, because if people could realize how much damage they are going to be creating for you, then they might not get involved. And maybe if some of the people working there can look in that mirror and see how much damage they're creating, all in the guise of somehow helping you and being beneficial in your life, maybe they would stop for a moment and really take a look. But until that happens and they understand what they're doing, it really falls on you to take care of you. And to remember that these are people who, by virtue of design of the organization or by virtue of their wiring inside, if it's a narcissist, that they just are not supposed to, are not capable of caring about you. 
They are very interested, though, in seeing how much they can extract from you. That's your value to them. But then there's nothing left because you're empty. And then they discard you without emotion, without regret or compassion. Before I sign off today and switching gears for a moment, I would like to be able to interview people who have been involved in teen treatment programs. Of course, doing a story about Narconon is something that made me think about other programs, residential usually and otherwise, that will take people in and tell them they're going to cure them of something but end up causing so much damage and trauma. I've already had a few people on the show talking about their experiences in these kinds of unregulated teen treatment programs, but my listeners have recently expressed that they would love to hear from more people who have been involved in these programs that were not at all how they portrayed themselves to be on their websites or in their brochure, and also places where people had to deal with horrific gay conversions and other sorts of practices that seem so subhuman. Let me know if you have a story that you want to share or you know someone who has a story that they want to share. More light needs to be shed on this issue. More light needs to be shed on all of these issues. Thank you again for Lucas, and I hope to speak with him again. And I'll talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's Radio Public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.